You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Douglas. Douglas of the McKinnon clan. Uh, Douglas McKinnon, director extraordinaire. And somebody I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. Thanks for coming on. A pleasure. Um, Douglas, we've got a lot to talk about and not much time. So what I want to do first of all is go right back to the very start. Forget about Doctor Who and all the other things you've done. Go back to your childhood. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were like six or seven or whatever? Oh, I, <clears throat> I've got no, I had no real clear path, I don't think. Um, although I can make up a path quite easily because I, from a very early age, I was really kind of obsessed, maybe not six or seven, but certainly nine or ten, I was obsessed with science fiction and that was, uh, I remember, I remember television arriving in the Isle Sky where I was born and brought up and uh, Doctor Who in black and white, four or five lines and indeed, oh. co- consequently Star Trek, four or five lines. We didn't get colour TV till I was uh, about 17, 18. Uh, so I still get surprised at seeing things like Star Trek in colour because <laughs> I remember them in black and white. Yeah. But, but, I, but, but I also remember um, as soon as I discovered that I didn't have to get whatever Santa Claus brought and I could actually have a choice that I just asked for a pile of um, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov books and that was my, you know, that was when I realised I could do that and uh, bypass Santa Claus's taste, that was much better for me. Did you want to be a writer prior to wanting to be a director or whatever then? I I was always very, my my mum was an English teacher and I was always just naturally, I think, good at English and uh, so the storytelling bit of me was always there, and it always has been. I've always been, you know, the guy in the corner telling a story about mm. something, for better or worse. So, yeah, and I, I remember English was sort of the easy subject for me. I, I could just go in and do it, you know, and uh, um, I, I, I just enjoyed that that process. And I, I don't really, at that time, I really didn't know what a director was. I didn't, you know, I never, I, I don't even remember thinking about the question, far less the answer, you know. And um, so, so I, I think the, the form of experience that I had was storytelling really and, that, and, that's, and that's part of my you know, oral storytelling is part of um, Highland Gaelic culture right down to the core so it's no great surprise that I you know I gravitated towards that and then I started doing photography at school and it sort of things joined up eventually in my 20s. Ah so you started with photography I was going to say on the subject of writing you wrote something for one of my books a couple of years ago and it was you know sometimes when you get uh, a piece of writing from a celebrity shall we say in inverted commas oh. you're never quite sure what you're going to get but yours was beautifully written Yeah uh, well I, I I try and learn from the best and I, I, I before I sent that that thing to you if it's the thing I'm thinking about I yeah. I, I, I let Russell C Davis have a look at it and he put the thumbs up <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I sort of thought it was all right. <laughs> so, 
Well, you can't argue with that. No, you can't. Even if he's partly lying, I'm, I'm happy. I was happy with that. <laughs> with Russell saying it was all right. You know? Oh no, no, no! What distinguished it was that the way you told, because it's like a, just a little vignette of a story, but the way you tell it, the way you set it up, and then the way you pay it off, is just you know absolutely gorgeous. One of those lovely things that you know a proper storyteller does. Oh, that's kind of you. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, I just think it's lovely that Russell T. Davis saw it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Photography, then. This was something yeah. you were doing at school, I guess. I did it at school, and then I went off and did a disastrous business studies course at a Napier College in Edinburgh, and then came back home to Sky. And when I was 19, I got a youth opportunity scheme working with a photographer in Inverness. And uh, it so happened he was... Just by complete, this is the, one of the great, you know, moments of coincidence in my life. Mm. That I was very lucky in that he 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 was also trying to get into the National Film School, which I eventually went to. Uh, but but I got plunged into photography, and uh, before I was twenty, I'd uh, I'd had front pages of all the national newspapers, including a a, a plane crash landing in Inverness on the front page of the Express and things like that. I got very lucky with that job. Uh, it was sixty nine quid a week and a, and a free camera and. It was the one of the lucky moments in my life. So, and obviously, you, it's obvious how you put photography and storytelling together and become a director. But how do you go from being a photographer who's in the newspapers to actually getting into directing? I mean, did you go straight into directing, or did you go into sort of more junior positions in television and that first? Uh, it, it was a process. I, w I went to after, after that course. I went off to the Glasgow College of Building and Printing, thinking I was going to do photography. But I'd, I'd reached a sort of a, uh, I, I hit a moral problem with press photography. Um, I was sent off to do, and, and this was like a symptom of it rather than a, 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 a big, huge turning point. But yeah. there was a moment, a moment where I was sent off to do uh, some pictures of uh, a child who, who had, I don't want to go into details because yeah. it's quite a small place, but he'd had a terrible trauma in his life. And I couldn't take the pictures of him. Um, which is, you know, good, good, good morally, but not so great if you're a press photographer. Yeah, because <laughs> you kind of need to be able to do that. And then I, I kind of ended up doing the same, similar sort of thing with a. a I, I went, as I said, I went to the College of Building and Printing in Glasgow, and then went to the National Film School after two, three attempts, and I ended up doing documentary there, but realising that again I couldn't quite follow through in it. So fiction just came my way, and it was just a way of telling stories, really that I could cope with properly. Having said that, though, you have done a couple of documentaries recently. Uh, yeah, they're slightly different. I, I did Drama Docs a, a few years ago, is probably what you're referring to. But those, those oh, OK, yeah. Slightly, it, was the, it was the drama reconstruction segments of that that I did. So, um, uh, no, I've kind, of, I've kind of left, for the moment anyway, I've left documentary behind. Because at the film school, I kind of... Um, I got trained in observational, participational documentary, and that's the only sort of documentary that really interests me long term. Uh, for a moment, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe in, in 10 years or something, I'll look at something else and, and find a subject that I really want to cover or something like that. But uh, for the moment, it's fiction. And so how do you get into, you know, what's your first job and how do you come by that? Uh, the answer slowly. I, I I I I graduated from the film school with a fiction film, and then um, I I started working. I, I got brought up 
Back Up to Scotland by John McGrath, who's a, a great sort of figure in my life. Who um, he he started off doing uh, writing and directing for the BBC in the early 60s. He, he did the first episode of Zed Cars and the last one as well. And he, but he then moved into doing theatre and a particularly sort of radical left-wing theatre in Scotland for the 784 Theatre Company, which he co-founded. Um, and indeed, there was a play that he wrote uh, that that uh, called "The Chevy at the Stag and Black Black Oil" that told the Highland story, and that had a big effect on my sort of thinking about the world. And anyway, I started working with John, but then also started working with BBC Scotland, doing arts programmes and all that sort of stuff. But then made a short film, a short fiction film that, that Peter Mullen was the lead in. Um, I'd love to be able to pronounce it, but I can't. Shellac, it's just a vision. Call it the vision. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, and and, and that, oddly, uh, I think it's through the storytelling, got me episodes of The Bill to do, and then off I went, really. And The the Bill, you know, which is, you know, gone now, but it really was a place where new fiction directors could really sort of cut their teeth and, and really get in there and, and, and just do a 22-minute episode and tell a great story and you'd get 18 million people watching, you know. So and the, was... Well, the great thing about The Bill was they made so many episodes but so many of them are self-contained, so you're actually properly telling a story as opposed to just being a tag director, as it were. Completely, and you know, I did. I only did six of them, but they were really great to do. And uh, the, the the in the 22 minutes that you had to tell a story, you could really get your teeth in. You, you know, there's some really great writing in there as well. And and, and like I say, the audiences were incredible. I, I had 18.6 million, I think, watch watching one episode that is one January. Um, and you really feel the country watching you at that point. And, you know, I didn't get that feeling again until uh, Doctor Who again, really. That's a massive way to start your career, though, really, isn't it? It was very exciting. You know, I've, I've been very lucky in these sort of moments. Was it nerve-wracking as well, though? Did you uh, ever feel the pressure of it? Did you ever feel the pressure of knowing that that many people were going to be watching what you were doing and thinking, oh, my God, I've really got to get this right? No, only excitement. Only excitement. That's it. And, and, uh, but yes, absolutely, wanting to get it right. But no, the excitement was thinking that um, you know a, a crazy amount of the population of the UK were going to be watching. You know, and, and um, so I just wanted to make sure that they were entertained. And uh, I've always had this sort of view view that directing and you know and everybody else who makes fiction and makes telly that that we're kind of a bit like a old Highland village. That, that there's people that in, in the village that um, will go out and do the fields and there's other people that will do the fishing and, and kind of my job is to tell the stories in the evening and yeah. I, kind of, I kind of think I've got quite a simplistic view of the world in that way and I still think that and I you know I'm, I'm currently doing uh, a Sherlock special and that's probably the, it's probably the biggest thing I've ever done in terms of the potential audience um, I, I mean 200 million people have watched, watched the last series of Sherlock in China alone so um, wow. but you, you kind of think well, it's very exciting to, tell, to have these stories to tell, and you just work your damnedest to make sure that you do a bit of you, you do your bit of society and tell the story brilliantly. Well, as a director, from what you've said, I mean, I've said this many times on this podcast that in storytelling, when you're writing a script, for example, you have the the central idea, the core idea of the story and all the other ideas the subplots and you know the character beats and everything else the subtext and the everything like that has to come out of that idea so that even if they're not directly related none of them contradict one another in mm -hmm. sort of tonal terms 
attracting is quite similar to my mind in that I mean a lot of people oh. look at the look at the phrase television director or film director or whatever and they're thinking and what they're really thinking of is the lighting cameraman or the director of photography they're thinking of the guy who points the cameras you're the guy in charge of the guy who points the cameras but that's not the only thing you're in charge of you're in charge of an awful lot of other things as well and as a director you have to in the same way as a writer has to make sure all the various different texts and plots that go into a story match up with one another your job is to make sure that the actors and the guy who's writing the music and the guy who's pointing the cameras and the guy who's designing the sets and the guy who's doing the costumes everybody's on the same page working towards a common goal and yeah yeah to, to... To, to a, a large extent, I agree with all that. I, 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 I'd sli- slightly back off from the, wor- the, the words in charge of. I, well, yeah. I, 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 I kind of think um, I'm, I'm sort of, again, I've got, a, a, I suppose, a particular view of this, that, that I think a director is part of a structure, and I, I don't like hierarchies personally, but I do believe in structure. So I, I, I think the runner and the producer and the, the writer and... Uh, the DOP and the actor, we've all got our own jobs in this collaborative yeah, venture, yeah. venture. And if it's working well, it should be collaborative completely and we should all feel ownership of it. And I think the, the, um, the, but, but the thing I do sort of get from the way that you're, that, that, the thing you've just said drifts that I do agree with is that I think one of the jobs that's slightly undervalued as a director is that you, you're there to bring coherence to all these different voices. Yeah. And, uh, but 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 there's nothing without the writing, you know. I, I, I mean, it's with, without the writing, without the story. I, I, I mean, I, I think, and we'll probably get onto this in a little while. But one of the things that I try and do when when I read a script is try and read it really in, in a really quiet spot for the first time. And when when you're lucky lucky enough, as I've been to have people like Russell T Davis and Jed Mercurio and uh, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, you know, scripts to 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 direct. The thing that I want to do for the audience is I, I, I want to let them have the experience that I have when I first read them, mm. and everything is directed towards that. So I, I, I want to read, you know, one of Stephen's scripts and and just go right. I just want I want them to feel the shock that I felt when when at the end of Listen that uh, that it was the young doctor. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, I, yeah. I, I want I want I want to replicate that feeling for the audience, and so every everything. All the, all the departments that, that you've discussed, you've described, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, they're all there to serve. In that case, Stephen's writing or Jed's writing or Russell's writing. It's all to serve the writing, because th- that that way I found, a, I always win. <laughs> well, you've more or less answered my next point. The point I was kind of coming to. Well, two points, but one is okay. The director is perhaps. The director is perhaps the sort of go-between who's maybe not in charge of then. I suppose particularly in television, in film, there's kind of more of a uh, cult around directors, isn't there? But in television, perhaps then, you're more of a go-between who makes sure all the different departments we're talking about are all on the same page, like you just said. But the other thing is, I was going to come to, and you've kind of already answered it, but I've noticed with your episodes of Doctor Who in particular given that it's a Doctor Who podcast and we're kind of here to talk about Doctor Who. Yeah. But that you, and you've already told me why, but I've noticed that you have a particular facility for telling stories. And when I say that, what I mean is that when I watch a Douglas McKinnon production, you have... 
Okay, let's put it this way. Sometimes when you watch a piece of work, especially on television where time is short and budgets are tight and you don't necessarily always have the time and the sort of resources to do as good a job as you perhaps would have done if you'd have had unlimited time and resources, yeah. you, you've kind of got to make the best of what you've got. And on something like Doctor Who... You've probably got more resources at your beck and call than maybe you would have on something cheaper or on a quicker turnaround, but you still don't have unlimited. So some directors I've found will get great, you know, camera shots, but the performances won't necessarily be brilliant. And some directors will get great performances, but the pictures look a bit flat. And I'm not saying this is a common thing, but, you know, sometimes if you're watching closely enough, you just kind of get an inkling of one thing or the other. And the reason why I wanted you to come on the podcast, why I'm such a big fan of yours, is because when I watch a Douglas McKinnon production, I know that I'm guaranteed that everything will be right at the top of its game, from the performances of the extras through to cutaway camera angles and everything you have, in other words, a facility for reading the script, understanding the script, which isn't necessarily the same thing as just being able to follow the story, but understanding the emotional beats and the sort of personal beats, as well as understanding the best way to bring it to a screen in a sort of pictorial visual sense. You have a way of understanding it and of actually getting the crew to bring that to the screen in, a, a, you know an absolutely sublime way. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> I have said all that now, and I've just realised that I've not really left you anything to say, have I? <laughs> um, well, but... what, 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 I would, what I would say is that it is a tough show to do, and, and I think um, I remember the first few days of directing Do- Doctor Who, Julie Gardner came up to me after the first few days and said a, a crucial bit of advice to me. She, she said, uh, it's the rushes are, look great, but they don't look, look like, like they're years. And I said, well, I'm trying to find the show. And she said, yeah. well, uh, why don't you just stop doing that? We've hired you for you to direct it, not somebody else in the past or in the future. You just do your thing and you'll be okay. And Ju- Ju- Julie, who is an inspirational character still, uh, you know, was absolutely right. And I, I, I just... Found at that point that the thing I wanted to do for better or worse, and your your your, your words are very kind, but for better or worse, what I want to do is again, I I, I just want to bring the best episode of Doctor Who to the to the Doctor Who audience that I could possibly do, and and in the end, that's me. You know, I I'm the biggest fan, and it's something that <laughs> you know I I, I that <clears throat> I, I I get really I'm just going slightly off on a tangent, but I get very upset about the criticism that Stephen gets, Stephen Moffat gets uh, from so-called Doctor Who fans, uh, and it's almost like they don't they don't see him as as the person he is, who, who yeah. and he is one of the biggest Doctor Who fans in the world, you know, and um, and and most of us who work in it, who who do anything decent with the show, are also Doctor Who fans. We we just happen to be unlucky enough to be the ones that are doing the storytelling that week, um, and I I I, I think. That's the passion that I certainly try and, and take into the crew and who are often absolutely exhausted from working for, you know, months and, you know, even years sometimes yeah. on the show. Uh, and, and, and also the, the, the actors as well. I just carry that in. And, and I think if you if you put yourself on the line a little bit and just say, look, I'm enthusiastic about this blooming thing, the scene we're doing, um, then chances are the actors will turn up and do something with you. And so the crew, and they, they, it's, 
Trees have often told me it's a much quicker day that's run with enthusiasm than what than than a day that's run with pain and grief. You mm. know, so uh, and if you've got a great script, you know, uh, you, you 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 better get on with it. If you've got a Stephen Moffat or Russell T Davis script, you or, or a Mark Gatiss one, you better get on with it because they don't come along every day. You know, and uh, there's not lots and lots of writers that, that that can write as well as these guys can. You know, so. Um, if you want to direct, you better enjoy these moments, and and I think that enjoyment and that passion comes out on the telly. That's the, that's kind of what I'm trying to get around to saying. It comes out. If, yeah. If, if you're passionate and you love what you're doing, in any walk of life, it'll come out in in the product that you come up with. Now, backtracking a little bit, and I completely agree with you, and I absolutely adore Stephen Moffat's writing, and you know I quite often use this show to, but that's beside <laughs> the by. People who listen to this uh, uh, podcast will know. Backtracking a little bit, yeah. You were talking earlier about kind of a uh, the luck of being in the right place at the right time. Well, yeah. you kind of had a couple of notes in your. I mean, we could go through your entire career and say what was it like to work on Soldier Soldier and things like that. But yeah, I don't suppose we've really got time to go through everything you've done, and you've done some pretty interesting things. In fact, before we go on, then, what of all the things that you've done before the sort of current phase of your career, where you sort of you're moving in the Doctor Who circles now, shall we say, and doing some other pretty interesting stuff as well. But of the sort of earlier part of your career, what was your most interesting and what was your favourite job? That could be two uh, different answers, by the way. Yeah, it, it, the, the, it's sort of tricky. I mean, uh, the, the obvious one that springs to mind that really doesn't take us away from Doctor Who was uh, I did the first uh, grown-up series that uh, there was this new young writer from Manchester. Uh, I was going to bring this up in a minute. <laughs> that nobody had heard of. And I, I, I did the first two episodes of his first series, and it was the first time that I'd started off the show as well. And, that, and you know what it is. It's, it's the grand that Russell wrote. And I, I did the first two of, of that, that series. I have the DVDs, and I have to say, I absolutely adore the first series of the grand. Loses its way a bit in the second series, but the first series is just great. Well, we, you know, I'm I'm still very proud of that, and and you know that first episode, uh, I think it shows Russell's writing, you know, of what was to, it shows what was to come, and you know, it was obvious to to me when I read it that I thought, gosh, I've got to get onto this guy, you know, because he's, yeah. he's, he's he's a genius, and I don't think we, I, I I don't think that when I was doing the ground with Russell, I even uh, had a conversation with him about Doctor Who. I, I don't think I even knew that he was a Doctor Who fan because uh, it just wasn't on our agenda at the time. We were both too busy trying to start off the show well, and uh, and it did really well. We got 11 million viewers on a Friday night, and uh, it, it did well for him. He seems to have coped since, and uh, I, I did okay <laughs> as well. So. Um, so that, that that was one of my, my favourites. But at the time, I'll tell you, generally speaking, I was just surprised and amazed to be being allowed to, you know, do television drama. Uh, and uh, that was just a great period of my life in that sense. So I was just, you know, continuing to learn and continuing to try and, you know, do the next thing that came along. And a director's life, when you're, when you're a jobbing director, you're really a, like a victim of the next job that comes up and the next job that's offered. So I kind of wasn't picky about it. And... I did, uh, you know, jobs I've really happy. I don't I have no regrets about doing them, but jobs like doing the, the tail end of Soldier Soldier and London's Burning, which are huge series. I did London's Burning when they'd run out of uh, money for fires, you know. So, <laughs> wow. uh, but you know, but but but, but it's the industry is quite small. So, for instance, on London's Burning, there, there was a young special effects guy 
called Danny Hargreaves, who right, yeah. uh, and who now, as many of your listeners will know, is the sort of stalwart of special effects for Doctor Who and for Sherlock and Line of Duty and, you know, a lot of the shows that I've done, a lot of the shows that are around. So it, it's kind of, um, you, you, you sort of, you meet a lot of people on the way and, and you just try and end up, you know, being in a gang that's the best gang, really. And I've been lucky in that way to end up with the, the sort of the recent career I've had, which has been, you know, working with great writers and great, great crews. Well, you know, as they say, cream always rises to the top. But on the subject of the grand, one of the interesting things on that, considering that you were there right in at the start doing the first two episodes, how much say would you have in setting up the cast on that? Hey, we, we, we had a, 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 a significant say. I, I, I cast with the producer, Tony Woods, and Gub Neal, who exec produced it, and Russell. Uh, although Russell wasn't as involved with the casting in my memory as, as uh, he, he would be now, uh, you know. Because um, yeah. uh, I, I suspect it's just because it wasn't regarded as being a thing a writer did at that time. Uh, and and he'd, get, he'd get to look at the tapes, and that would be kind of it, you know. Um, but, I mean, Russell... Russell's a big character, as we all know, so I, th- I think we always valued his opinions about everything, and he would make himself make it, make it very clear about uh, whether he liked or didn't like somebody, um, or, or thought yeah, it was something yeah. suitable. It's, so, uh, but no, uh, ca- casting's a big part of directing television drama, and it, uh, although there are, you know, these days, the sort of shows I do, there, there are, you know, we just offer to certain people. Um, generally speaking, you're involved with casting from beginning to end, really. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about the Grand, and there's a real chemistry between the entire cast on that series. Yeah. Is that something that you particularly look out for? And is it something do you think you need to have a facility for? Because you don't get to see the cast all together until they're actually assembled, do you? No, you don't. I mean, I think you do have to have it. But but again, again, I'm going to be really boring for this whole podcast and keep (laughs) on saying uh, it's the writing that does it, you know. It, the, the 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 cast and you know the directing uh, comes out of the storytelling that's on the page and you 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 keep on looking back to that and and say well what's the relationship within the scenes what's the relationships within the story and you sort of build a sort of tapestry of of interwoven you know relationships but they really you, you know you have to have a scene that that says that somebody's either falling in or out of love to understand that relationship you can't you yeah. can't just make it we don't make it up on the set we can build it and we can tune it up and we can make it subtler and we can you know make it more beautiful and everything else but really if the interaction is not there on the page there's nothing to do you know uh, and and trust me i've done enough shows where it's not on the page <laughs> and you do try and make it up and it's never as good because really 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 what you're doing if the writing's not good enough is that on the set what you're actually doing is continuing the writing and and um and then you continue again in the, in the edit and and uh, that's not as good as starting off with a script that just works you know yeah, absolutely. Well, the other, moving on a fair bit through all sorts of other interesting programs, including The Last Detective. So, you know, the recent yeah, doctors yeah. aren't the only doctors you've worked with by any no, no, stretch. No. But then there's, in 2007, another series you start off. And this is another of those moments, I think. It's Jekyll. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what was that like to sort of get kick-started? Hey, that was fantastic, and I I I I made my so far my one feature film, uh, The Flying Scotsman, and yeah. I, I went in, I went into see Hartswoods and met Stephen 
and Sue and Elaine Cameron, the producer, and Beryl, of course, Beryl Virtue for the first time. And um, a, I didn't meet Sue because Sue wasn't working on it, but, but um, it, it, it was Elaine Cameron, who's, as it turns out, married to Jed Mercurio. Uh, but, but I met them all for the first time. And I think having done my film, they sort of thought that I could do something with Jekyll. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had an immediate very Scottish bond with Stephen, which means that we don't talk about anything, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I just got his stuff. And, you know, we were doing Robert Louis Stevenson, so we, 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 we just got on and did it. And, I, I mean, my only regret, I, I, I mean, no disrespect to the, um, the second director on, on Jekyll, but my only regret is that I wish I could have done all six of them. And, we, we you know, because I, I, I just felt it right down to my core, something that I loved. And Stephen's writing was just so extraordinary. It was like it was like seeing uh, Russell's writing as well. You, you just, you know, for me, it just clicks and I just get what they're talking about, I, th- I think. And yeah. generally speaking, you know, I can just work with it and know know what they mean and know what they're trying to say. And I hope building it, you know. Um, but it was an extraordinary series to work on. And, and, and I think it was a real a mistake not to carry on with that. I was just going to say, do you know why there was no second series? Because the end of that series seemed to set up for a second series, didn't it? It does, yeah. And I think think, uh, it needs to be left in the mysteries of of, uh, time and uh, commissioners and so on, but why we didn't carry on. I I, I do think there was a a, a change in BBC One's... uh, My memory is that the BBC One controller changed around about that time. I mean, that often happens that... Yeah. Series don't get recommissioned because somebody's taste changes, and that you know that that's the nature of the business. But but you know the the, the funny thing is, I, if, if Jekyll had gone again and we'd done like five series of it, I don't think we'd have Sherlock right now. So um, uh, that that you know that that's the way the world turns, really. You know. So, but I still hanker after the idea of revisiting Jekyll again sometime in the future. You know, you never know. Maybe, wow. maybe, maybe we'll go back to it. Yeah, it is an absolutely extraordinary series. That the thing about Stephen Moffat, I find Russell T Davis, yes, in a different way. But Stephen Moffat, with some of the stuff he's done since uh, since he did the the first Doctor Who for Russell T Davis back in two thousand and five, Stephen Moffat now has turned into somebody who makes who or who gets to sort of be in charge of making the kind of television that you couldn't even have imagined 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I, forgive me, but I'm not going to join in some sort of competitive thing between Stephen and Russell. Cause I oh, no, 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 I think work. they both do it, but in different yeah. ways. I think they do, and I, th- I think they've got amazing qualities in different directions, perhaps, and different... T- but they're, they're, they're just different people, so they write slightly differently. And yeah, yeah. Different things. I, I actually think they, they share an enormous amount of the same values, and they also share... And you know they're both the most extraordinary talented writers that we have, two of them at least. And, and uh, so I think Stephen's writing um, it, it, it sort of builds on in what he's done so far. I think people people sometimes think he's not an original writer because he because of Sherlock and Jekyll and Hyde, but the original writing he does in Doctor Who is just the most extraordinary stuff and. I don't think people quite get how skillful it is and how amazing it is that what he does. And, and Russell's a different kettle of fish, but does his his own amazing stuff in, in, a, in a you know different milieu sometimes. But but it's nevertheless amazing. Oh, I think I think Russell T Davis's stuff. I'm not 
Well, no, I am a big fan of Russell T. Davis as Doctor Who, but I think I'm more of a fan of Russell T. Davis as non-Doctor Who than I am of his Doctor Who, if you see what I mean. You, you, you can ask me which one of the three Doctor Whos that I've worked with is my favourite, and I'm never going to say that. No, no, <laughs> I, no, 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 uh, those are the kinds of questions. I, I couldn't even ask you who you prefer out of Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat. I think it's a ridiculous question. Yeah. I'm not going to ask it, but what would your answer yes. be if I did? Um, uh, <laughs> no, I was going to say, between the and Jekyll, that's kind of, you know, the case of being in the right place at the right time to a certain extent, or being the right person in the right place at the right time, maybe. maybe but maybe. but do you, uh, was it because of the grand that you got the job on Doctor Who? And why the hell did it take them four years to get you on that programme? Hey, no, it, it was, it was uh, uh, there was a couple of things to get me onto Doctor Who. There, there, there was Russell, and a, but Susie Liggett, who produced it, uh, mm. was one of the producers on Doctor Who, uh, and who produced my first two episodes there. She'd been a first AD on the very first episode of The Bill that I did, so that, that's how interconnected wow. it all is. Uh, and then I, I seem to remember I was going to be interviewed for Torchwood, and just after I'd finished Jekyll, and Stephen uh, sort of stepped in and, uh, and uh, suggested that I might do some episodes of Doctor Who instead. So Stephen, Stephen was a, a very much a force in getting me onto it, or certainly giving, you know, giving Julie and Phil Collinson, who, you know, who were the other two that were, were there, the confidence to take me on, sort of thing. Wow. Um, you, you, you know, we, we all need people that, that, you know, put their voices up and go, you know, have a look at this guy here and there. And, you know, I, I try and pass that on all over the place in my own way to, you know, for other people. And, and you know, that's, it, it, um, but it's nice to have Stephen Moffat as your champion, that's for sure. Oh, hell yeah. Do you yeah. know, I, I believe, I believe you're absolutely unique in that you're the only director to have directed for Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis, both before they took on Doctor Who and to do Doctor Who's for them as well. That's probably true. I, I've never thought of that. But yeah, that's probably true. That's quite a. That's a good. That's a good thing, I think. <laughs> well, that is. I would say that's about the best compliment you can get, isn't it? They both yeah. thought that you were good enough to have you back, and you know, both of them, they've not done that with anybody else. Yeah, probably nobody else available. I always, I always say to, <laughs> I always say to my, my kids that. Uh, directing is, uh, is and I think it's probably the same of all jobs that. I'm standing in a queue of directors that stretches all the way to Steven Spielberg, and uh, I, I, I think I think uh, Doctor Who would love to have Steven Spielberg do an episode of Doctor of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. But they're never going to get him. But you can only hope that you move up the queue a little bit here and there, you know, as well as that you don't remain remain static. So I'm, I, you know, I, I I I try not to ask too many questions about why you get the gigs. Just you know, just get the head down and do them after you get them, really. Well, you must be pretty far up the clue, up the clue, up the, up the, up queue. the, <laughs> up the queue yeah. if you're doing the Sherlock special. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's been amazing the last few months. It's just been a brilliant sort of uh, experience. And, uh, it, you know, we're still uh, in the process of making it, so that's very exciting. I can't tell you very much about it for obvious reasons. Uh, if I thought that, that security surrounding Doctor Who was uh, tight, then Sherlock's another level up, really. Well, okay, but seeing as we've brought it up, let's talk a little bit about Sherlock before we move on. You can I'm try. I'm not going <laughs> to ask you anything about the story, but the way the series has worked, the first series was slightly different 
No, not necessarily so much. I was going to say the first series. When you do a first series, you're not necessarily guaranteed of getting a second series. So although they left it on a cliffhanger, there wasn't the sort of there wasn't quite as much continuity between the stories as there was in the second, and then especially in the third. Yeah. So with the special being essentially a standalone, although yeah. it comes between a cliffhanger and presumably will lead on into series four but has there been and although it's the only one you've done so I, you can't give first-hand experience but the process of doing the standalone special of sherlock has that been different do you think from whether if you had done an episode in a series I, I I think it's enormously different for one very big and big reason that that we have made public, which is that a this particular episode of Sherlock is going to be set in 1895. Are you pulling my leg? Not at all. We're we're we're, we're we've unbooted the reboot. We're uh, we're doing a Victorian Sherlock. Right. You... <laughs> Either I've just got the biggest exclusive or the biggest load of egg on my face ever. Hey, no. It, 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 it's, we've we've released photos of a uh, Benedict and Martin in Victorian garb, and uh, we're doing Victorian Sherlock. That's what we're doing. Oh, really? You have yeah. spoiled it for me now, because I try and avoid all Doctor Who and spoilers of everything if I can. Well, I don't, don't ask what the story is then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, I sort of walked into that one, didn't I? Really? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. really interesting, though. You're doing Sherlock as a period thing. Yeah, I'm assuming kind of in that case it doesn't follow the continuity at all, but you're sort of doing a sort of alternative version of Sherlock if you'd had those two people as Sherlock and Watson back in the time. You'll have to wait and see. Oh, okay, fair enough. That's absolutely fascinating. It is. I mean, I, I, I mean, what 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 I can say is it's the first time I believe that uh, a Stephen and Stephen Buffett and Mark Gates have written together. Uh, on on Sherlock, in fact, I know that's I know that's the case. So that's fascinating in itself. And um, a, I, I also get because again, you'll know that I did Cold War that Mark wrote for yeah, Doctor yeah. Who. I directed that as well. So I kind of know them both pretty well in terms of how they work and what they do and everything else. But uh, it's certainly the biggest bit of television that I've ever directed, and I'm I'm just dying for everybody to to see it in due course. Well, if you've got a copy in a Dropbox, let me know, and yeah, I'll let sure. you know I'll, what I'll, people are going to think. I'll send it over in the morning, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that leads me into talking about Doctor Who. We've been talking for about yeah. half an hour or so, and we've not really talked about Doctor Who, and people listening to this podcast will want us to talk about Doctor Who. So, Ask me anything. Well, uh, the thing that I'd really like to know is... Or not the thing I'd really like to know, but the the observation I think I've made, and I'd like to know your sort of opinion on this, perhaps, is you're a Doctor Who fan, self-confessed. You even said so at the yeah. start of this episode. You know, one of the things that sort of got you thinking about all this in the first place was seeing Doctor Who on TV. Yeah. Sometimes as Doctor Who fans, we look at an episode and we... Uh, well, one of the things that we'll sometimes do that will often lead to unnecessary criticism, we'll, we'll ask whether it works as Doctor Who and we'll compare it yeah. with the Doctor Who that we enjoyed when we first got into Doctor Who. Rather than saying, does this work as a piece of television? And rather than comparing it with old Doctor Who, comparing it with the other television that's around it. Mm. But where I'm going with this is, 
Doctor Who is one of those series where every story is different. Not just um, different in that maybe one will be more of a murder mystery and another one will be more like a war story and every now and again you want that's maybe a bit more like a love story. But beyond that, they're all set in different places and beyond that, they're all set in different time periods. When it comes to directing Doctor Who, do you sit down with the script and do you think to yourself, right, I've got to make an episode of Doctor Who, or do you sit down with the script and think to yourself, right, I've got to make a Cold War story, or I've got to make a a story about an alien planet, or whatever? It's a good question, and what I'd say is that the answer is different each time, uh, but but in recent years, um, with the exception of Listen, uh, I'd say I've kind of, the the stories I've got to tell, uh, like in Time Heist and in um, Cold War and episodes like that, they, they, they've tended to be kind of genre pieces to, to begin with. Yeah. That, that, that Doctor Who is doing. So, uh, for instance, with Time Heist, uh, and, and actually with Listen as well, because you could, you, you could say it's a you know kind of a horror story with uh, in, in some ways, or yeah, certainly yeah. A, you know a, 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 a frightener sort of thing. Um, I. What was the word that Hitchcock used? It was be scared. I can't remember what the word was. But anyway, the, but what I did with Time Heist, I, I watched all the heist movies I could find, you know, from beginning to end. I, and with with Cold War, I watched all, all all the 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 Cold War, you know, films that I could yeah, find, yeah. And, and submarine films that I could find, and uh, and and then I kind of you, you really what what. what what I do is I try and absorb all that information and then feed it back into the um, the episode that I'm doing, and it always pops out originally because as an original sort of piece because the writing is not, you know, it, it, yeah, you know, you, you're not doing Carrie or you're not doing you know Rosemary's Baby when you're doing Listen, you're doing Listen, but nevertheless the influences of that is that I kind of one of the things that's very hard on the show as a director and. So particularly in an episode like Listen, is to distill the genre into forty-five minutes because sometimes, you know, like a horror film, part of the part, one of the ways that the genre works is, is through a very slow build in the, in the storytelling. Whereas with Doctor Who, you kind of have to get it going before the title starts. Yeah, know? yeah. So, so when when you're dealing with an atmospheric piece, that's harder. But with something like Time Heist. The, the, the signals are you can get them in really quickly because it's all to do with energy and moving it forwards. And with Cold War, you know, as soon as, as soon as you that opening shot, the uh, if people go and have a look at it, there's a shot. The opening shot is a shot that is, is just ranging across the Arctic ice flows and uh, is it the Arctic or the Antarctic? I can't remember, but it's yeah. ranging across <laughs> them and and then plunges into the water and you're following a submarine and you kind of know where you are. You're in that genre, you know, and then you discover it's. You know, there's a nuclear sort of threat happening right before the titles, and then there's a, you know, a creature in a big block of ice. So you kind of, um, what, what, what I think I'm trying to just get ready to say is that if you can identify the genre that you're dealing with in Doctor Who, it's sometimes easier to do a great episode of Doctor Who because what what, what you then do is you take this unique element of the Doctor and companion or whatever it is or whoever it is that week, and you feed them in. I think one of the things that I, I in the future, I'd love to do, uh, and I haven't had the chance to do, apart from the Centaurans and the Ice Warrior, 
I'd love to take on, you know, the Daleks or, or uh, Cybermen and, and really push their own genre forwards, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the Asylum of the Daleks, I think Nick Curran did an extraordinary job in that way that he managed to, you know, again through Stephen's writing, but through Nick's directing as well, he managed to make uh, the Dalek genre move forwards. And that's what you're always searching for, again, in, 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 in who, for me, is... You're, you're, you're trying not to just re- repeat what's gone before. You're trying to shift it forwards a little bit and, and put a new twist on, you know, who the, who, who the ice warrior is and what their past is and what their future is. And, 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 and also, you know, we mustn't forget the central character plus the usual, usually the human companion about what they're doing as well. And yeah. um, I, I, I think in amongst all that mix, in a, in a really great episode of the show, You've got all of that working, and you've got, you know, you've got the doctor, you've got, a, you know, the human companion, and that, that that makes up the mix that makes a great Doctor Who episode. Sorry, I, I don't know that I can't remember what your original question was. Oh no, 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 no! You're answering it. You're certainly answering it. You yeah. know, well, you, you've brought up an interesting point there. Oh, you've brought up two interesting points. One is, I'll try and make sure Stephen Moffat gets to hear this podcast because now I want to see what you do with the Daleks. <laughs> And the other one is Cold War and Time Heist, but they're both very obviously a specific genre. Yeah. And Listen is kind of of a genre in that it sort of takes that milieu and tells a different story, but within that sort of milieu. The two that are really interesting that you did, and I think actually the Sontaran mm. one. Well, we did. We, well, we did. <clears throat> yeah. I, 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 I think with Listen, I think the thing that. Um, Stephen want, wanted to, to do it, and, and, and I think we, broadly speaking, managed it, was to try and tell us a, a scary story, but without actually having having a creature, you know. Yeah. And that, that that was the hardest task I've ever had on the show was to <clears throat> take on, um, even with Stephen's great writing, take on a, 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 you know, I think Stephen Stephen sort of said to me once, you know, recently we managed to get them behind the sofas and we only had a red blanket, you know, to deal with. I Stephen Moffat's writing on Listen, I think, is extraordinary, and I have a feeling that Listen is going to go down as one of the very best episodes of Doctor Who of, of all time. He does something a little bit different in that story, not just in that he doesn't have the monster, but that Stephen Moffat has this thing of asking the question after he's already given you the answer, but in Listen, yeah. he does this other thing instead, where he gives you the answer as the question. I I'm not sure if you know what I mean, but I think it's an extraordinary piece of writing, and I, I just think it's one of the best episodes of Doctor Who there's ever been. Well, thank you. I, no, I, I think I think the ambiguity that Stephen manages to leave behind, and you know, and I was part of it as well, that 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 we we leave behind after the episode is over is um, a really really hard thing to get to with drama because. It, it's very easy to, if you attempt to do that. To it, uh, ambiguity usually leads to frustration, but actually, yeah. uh, the reaction that we've had uh, is that the ambiguity is the thing that people really love and enjoy, and um, and that's apart from the you know sensational thing of you know Clara's relationship with the Doctor and you know where that came from and where that goes to yeah. as well. But 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 I think. Um, I, I think the central, you know, beautiful message about fear and, and not being frightened of fear is, you know, 
it's when Doctor Who is at its best it sends a little message out that's not to do with religion but is to do with humanity and I think I think we got it pretty right in that episode really I've got to tell you one thing when I first watched Listen the hairs on the back of my neck stood up in the scene with the coffee mug right <laughs> and it's the and it was the bit where you see um, Peter Capaldi drinking from the coffee mug that made I mean it was very funny but also, yeah. the hair stood up on the back of the neck because I think that was the moment where I thought, right, I know what, what he's doing here and where this is going to go. Not all the places it was going to go, but you know. Mm. But the second time I watched it, obviously you know what's going to happen, so you don't get that same thing. But instead, the second time I watched it, I had a really powerful emotional experience with it. Right. Which just goes to show what an extraordinary piece of television it is. But... On the subject of listen, you brought to it a very different feel from the feel mm. you've brought to your other episodes. And that leads me on to, well, The Power of Three and Flatline are also two very different episodes for Doctor Who. You, you've been, I would say lucky, but no, it's not been lucky. They've chosen you to do this because they know you can do it. But they've put you behind the camera on some of the more experimental episodes of Doctor Who, shall we say, but deliberately, because they knew you could bring them in, but The Power of Three, particularly, that must have been something very different in terms of Doctor well, Who. Jenna's got a thing that she always says to me when I turn up, they, she, she says that they, they always give me the hard ones to do, so <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not, and, uh, and then Peter Capaldi just has a go at me because I'm Scottish again, you know, yeah. but uh, uh, but I, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I hope, I hope it's deliberate that they give me the hard ones to do. And I, but they're the, they're the best ones to do as well. And Flatline and Cold War and um, the Power of Three. I mean, the Power of Three again. Chris Chibnall, you know, what a treat to have a writer of his stature uh, doing your episodes. And um, it, it came about in a really strange way because a, it was kind of like an extra episode that, that they weren't expecting to get commissioned uh, and. Because it was one of those years where the series was split over two years, wasn't yeah, it? I think. Yeah. I think I'm right to say. So they got an extra episode to do, it, and Chris was quickly commissioned to do it. And um, it it was an episode. It was a bit like Flatline last year. That that um, it seemed like I was filming it forever. You know, that I kept on going back and doing another little bit, another little bit. Uh, and and although Power Three was shot in the normal schedule, and Flatline was shot as a a double banker, uh, which I'll explain if you want me to, but it's kind of, it's when, yeah, episode, yeah. when two episodes are shot at the same time alongside each other. Uh, but they both had this sort of flavour of, of of being kind of orphans in, in, in the series and, you know, that you had to keep on building them, you know, and, and uh, they were both fantastically interesting in that way. Um, and Flatline, you know, it, again, I kind of, through no fault of anybody's, and, and uh, Nikki Wilson, who was my producer in that, went off to have a baby in post-production, and so she had to get on with her own production, uh, joyously, <laughs> as it turned out. And, and uh, but but I was kind of left to get on with that one a little bit on my own, and it was lovely to deliver it with such vigour, and and that it turned out to be so popular was great as well. And you know, a new star is born in the writing world for Doctor Who with Jamie as well. Yeah, so it's kind of like a, you know, the the. Um, all these bits and pieces, you, you know, but in the end, you know, I, I, I say this to anybody who I work with, uh, you know, in series that are already established, I, I have a really simple target as a director that I hope all other directors have as well, that 
I just want every episode that I do of Doctor Who to be the best ever episode of Doctor Who. And that's, I just aim for that relentlessly, you know, with passion. And, uh, and it doesn't always work and it's for others to judge, but that's, that's how I work is just to go for the best ever episode of Sherlock ever and just aim higher than it's ever been, even though it's been high up already. And, um, with Listen, I think it's got its own texture, partly because Stephen wanted to step away from doing, um, uh, the, the opening, closing, you know, mid-season blockbusting episodes yeah, for yeah. once and do something that was more of a, you know, a, a, a sort of small, the way he put it was that he didn't want to play the whole orchestra. He wanted to play, you know, have us play the piano on its own for once. And I kind of, you know, I take my tone from, you know, when somebody like Stephen talks to me in those terms. Um, I take that tone from him and take it very seriously because I want to get in under that skin of that thought. And uh, I mean, I remember reading Listen for the first time, and I think I was probably maybe the second or third person to have read it, and just getting that feeling of calmness and peace right from the beginning and the storytelling was very different from you know uh over the horizon starts crashing into things it, it was that quiet questioning and, and what's unique about it as well or you know exceptional about it in doctor who terms is that it starts with the doctor asking himself questions yeah. instead of usually the doctor is being asked questions do you know what i mean and then and then we turn back into what i think is the you know, the biggest thing in Doctor Who, which is we turn back into the companion and, and we have the human experience, the human journey through that is facilitated through the Doctor. Because I actually think Doctor Who is about the human companion, it's not about the Doctor. That's what I think. Or in a, yeah. That, on that side of things, really. Oh, no, I think I agree. And uh, I suppose the way I put it is if you're going to tell stories about the Doctor, you have to tell them through the companion anyway, because you have to in order to tell stories about the doctor you have to be looking at the doctor and that's what the companion's doing so yeah well, the, I... the, the companions represent us they, yeah you know, they're, they're the ones that are off and you know in these adventures that, and they represent us and there was a moment in a this entire episode that i did where donna comes back and she walks down the street that she's walked down a million times before except she's been off you know having all these amazing adventures to go and see her grandfather um and uh, and and, and you know, David Tennant's doctor drops her off at the end of the road. Her walk down the street, you know, reflecting on all these experiences that she had, I think is is you know one of my favourite moments in the episodes that I've been involved with. And and I always I always find when I feel that the companion has had an experience that's extraordinary, it's even more powerful than a um, seeing the doctor who, who has yeah. two thousand years of these experience having another experience. You know. Um, I think the, yeah. I think the Santaran story is underrated. I know it's not a popular one with a lot of sort of the more hardline fans, but I think it's very underrated. I think it's uh, I really enjoyed that story, and I think it's particularly well directed. Good, thank you. <laughs> Something like Flatline, then you're sort of doing uh, with Flatline. The thing that struck me about Flatline is that it's sort of in that series, Series 8, it's perhaps mm. the most Doctor Who story, but at the same time something completely new and different as well. When you come to direct something like that, do you ever sort of look at the script and think, right, I can see, I can see what this is in the classic sense, and I can also see what's new about it, and my job is to kind of marry those two things together? Yeah, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, the thing that I remember about Flatline most of all is, is, is almost everybody in the, the, the writing sort of department on the show and um, uh, pretty much anybody who read the script, they, they 
they said, I mean, quite often people will say, how are you going to do that you know, scene or how are you going to do that moment in the, sh- in, in the show? Um, you know, as in, listen, you know, how are you going to make it scary with just a blanket and everything else? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, but, but with Flatline, there was a sort of a, almost a barrage in pre-production of people coming up going, I just don't know how you're going to make this work. You know, I just got no idea how you're going to do this. You know, and other directors would come up and say the same thing. How are you going to do that? You know, how on earth are you going to... Because there was no... You know, J- J- Jamie had written these characters that are from another dimension that, you, you know, initially you can't see. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of... After listening, I thought I might get, you know, something solid to film. But no, we've got... <laughs> We got these characters, the, you know, we've got the boneless creeping along the floor, and, um, and you, know, you know, there's about five episodes worth of, of effects in there, all at different types of textures, you know, from the walls to the fully fledged CG, you know, rendered yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of uh, creatures, and to make all that coherent was was a, a really fascinating challenge, and it was fantastic fun to do, uh, and. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm really delighted that people seem to like it. It's it's a it's, it's a real treat. But you know, it's one of the pleasures of it, of directing Doctor Who is the contrast you get in different episodes. And so so within those six months or so, I directed a time heist, listen and and flatline, and you know, three more different episodes you couldn't find. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's the joy of it, really. Well, Douglas, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on, and uh, well. Apart from the fact that we've been bugged by a slightly dodgy internet connection, which hopefully people won't be able to notice from the editing. Yeah. Uh, I could have talked to you for another hour, but instead I shall leave it with one more question and then I'll say goodnight. And my final question is this, Douglas. Douglas, what is under that blanket in Listen? I can't possibly tell you. You have to make make your own mind up about what's under there. (laughs) <laughs> it's, 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 it's deliberately ambiguous and, and I want it to be for everybody and you can you know Clara asked the question you just you have to decide but you have to decide yourself you know what's there absolutely fair enough <laughs> thanks for coming on Douglas I hope it's not been too much of a trauma for you not at all it's been a pleasure it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you uh, right till next week then I was JR I was Douglas McKinnon And uh, we will speak again soon.